BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller? I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free. Ooh, you got fleeced. Next caller, what's your deal? I paid for 20 tanning sessions, but had to use them in a month. Now I'm orange. Ooh, you got burned. Next caller. I traded in my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24+. Plus. Hmm, how's that bad? I got to choose from their best plans. So what went wrong? Oh, nothing went wrong. And you're calling to... To request a song? You want a song. Of course. The choice is yours. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 Plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection. Your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O. T-I-K-A dot com. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, And all the world is biscuit shaped. It's just for me to feed my face. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Tolkabon. And I'm Joe McCormick. No, Joe. The lyric this week does not tie into the topic. It was just some words. Yep. Just, just saying words. Words, Wor- just words are words. good. We yeah. like words here. What's well, then what is the topic, Jonathan? Well, the topic is, you know, you guys are putting so much pressure on me. There's way too much. I'm having to carry the whole load of explaining what the topic is. Well, would, how can we help you, Jonathan? I think we should all kind of, you know, share the responsibility. Okay, yeah. let's do that thing, uh, the improv thing, where each pro- each time. person says one word. Okay, so <laughs> wait, 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 wait. I'll start. And then where is it going to from you? To, to, to Lauren. Okay. Today's topic is about distributed computing. Guys. Yeah. All right. There we go. I think that was probably the most successful word of the time I've ever been part of. Yeah. Nobody brought in like guns that shoot snakes. Yeah. No one said anything about Nazis. Or yeah, there wasn't a head in a box, which is almost (laughs) always what happens in an improv scene. Wait, what did we say? Distributed computing? (laughs) Yes. 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 So, Joe, back in the day which was a Tuesday, uh, there was this issue where you would have a big computational problem, really, really complex. And you essentially had one computer to feed it through. And you really just had to wait until the computer was able to complete that problem. And you were completely reliant 
upon that computer and that computer's limitations. Right. That was it. That was that. So if it didn't have enough punch card slots, you were just out of luck. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was pretty much it. Like if you if the program you <laughs> wanted to run had uh, a requirement that was so large that you didn't have a box big enough to hold all the punch cards. Yeah, it was too complex for that machine. Yeah, I, which is you know also how stuff like algorithms started to be written because people said, oh hey, if we can create a shortcut that says you know. Yeah, this is the birth of hackers, right? right? Where hackers would say, I have an outcome that I need to have happen. How do I make that happen? It doesn't have to be pretty. It just has to work. Well, you know, in science, we actually have issues like this where scientists, researchers are working on uh, uh, projects where you get massive, truly massive amounts of data. And then you have to figure out, well, We've got all this information, but we can't really do anything meaningful with it. Yeah, you've got a problem that's computationally intensive, meaning you you sort of know how to solve it. You have a method to get there, but you just need the ability to do all that work. And oh, right, right. If you're going to run it through one computer, what if you're trying to do a research project where you're sitting here in front of your computer and it gives you an estimate that says, okay, it'll only take 45 years to do all the calculations <laughs> On this data. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's sort of the equivalent of saying, like, well, I have this room full of fun-sized candy bars. I know I can count them, but I only have, you know, ten fingers and ten toes. Right. So once I get beyond that, it's going to start getting tricky. Well, here's the other way of doing this. We I did, just want a room full of fun-sized candy bars. I'm sorry. I'm going to come back I'm going to run with that example. All right, sure. Interruption. What kind of candy bars? Oh, I'm going to say... Heath, Heath Crunch bars? Those are, that's acceptable. I also would have accepted Butterfinger. Okay. Uh, or, I shouldn't really have peanuts, so. That's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're having the issue with the peanuts. So. Okay. Let's say, let's say that all, <laughs> we have that issue so where. Fun Heaths. Okay. Lauren yeah. needs, Lauren's got a room full of fun-sized Heath bars. And, uh, and if she were going in there on her own to count them all and was using her fingers and toes as reference, she would very quickly run out of fingers and toes and then she'd have to start trying to remember things. It would take her time to get through all of that. I'd have to make little hash marks on paper individually. Right. So if she ended up inviting a bunch of her friends over and she had divided up the floor into a grid and assigned each person a part of that floor where they are not allowed to eat said candy bars, <laughs> merely count them. And then together you all came up and wrote down the numbers you came up with and then added all those numbers. You would then know how many candy bars were in that room. You had divided the problem up. Yeah, it'd take a lot less time that way. Right. Yeah. So this is kind of what distributed computing is all about. So you could do the approach of getting a supercomputer that has an incredibly fast processor or maybe several processors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one, those are rare. Two, because they're rare, their time is often spoken for. Mm-hmm. So your project will probably be competing with multiple other projects. But they're very expensive to use. That's mm-hmm. that's number three as well. They are very expensive to get that time. And so uh, and also, you know, they're going to tackle that problem. They might be really fast at it, but they're going to tackle that problem sequentially. Okay, but how about instead of one really powerful computer, you buy a whole bunch of less powerful computers and then you break the task up into small chunks like we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you've, you've got a lot of sort of powerful computers computing little bits of your task. That's often referred to as grid computing. Yeah. It's uh, grid computing and distributed computing are are sometimes interchangeable it really depends upon who's doing the talking is ultimately what it comes down to uh sure but but what if you don't have the the funding to buy a grid worth of computers or what if even a reasonably sized grid of computers isn't going to get the problem done fast enough? or if you don't have space to put a grid of computers because it's all taken up by fun size heath bars yeah so <laughs> clearly this is not necessarily the best option either there could be other you know options out there right so problem Meet wasted potential, your computer. Not and mine. I mean your computer, you the listener, oh, all right, not and the that. three of us. Well, actually, yeah, yours too. Yeah, I mean, yours. mine well, as well. It was confusing me because Joe was clearly pointing at me. Or your, well, well, I was pointing yes. at my microphone, so I was pointing <laughs> at the listener uh, and Noel's computer and everybody in the office. I yeah. mean, what if and all... And your smartphones and your tablets sure. and et cetera. Yeah, yeah. things well, that have processors. Well, we have tons of CPUs around yeah. the world. Sure. 
and GPUs. that are not yeah yeah that are so they're they're capable of doing important processing work they they can do math they can run simulations they can catalog data they can do all these computational tasks that these big supercomputers do on a much smaller scale and they're not helping they're just sitting there when you're not yeah, using yeah. them yeah uh, unlike unlike our brains which which genuinely do use the whole brain to do stuff that 10% rule does not apply as we've spoken about before your computer is really only using a, a small fraction of its potential processing power at any given time and especially right. when you're for example away from home yeah. right so here we now reach the idea of the popular distributed computing method also known as volunteer computing yeah where there's a project that says says, hey, I wonder if we can get a bunch of people out in the world to donate some of their computer power to help us find a solution to our problem. Right. Now, clearly, this only really works if the problems you are tackling can be divided. Right. Not all computer problems are that way. So there, we kind of talked about this with quantum computers as well, which sort of take this concept and boil it down to a single machine. It's the fact that the qubits can act as either zeros or ones and all values in between, technically, mm-hmm. that allow them to to do all the parallel processing simultaneously. At least that's the the concept. This is sort of the same thing, except instead of the, the conceptual doing them all simultaneously on one machine, you've divided that problem up across a network of machines, all of which are working on parts of it. If the problem can't be divided, then grid computing or distributed computing isn't going to work. You have to have that sequential approach. Think of it as if I have a, a math problem that's completely distinct, then I can solve that. Uh, and if I have a whole series of math problems, each of which are distinct, I can solve them in whatever order I want, right? If problem one seems like it's too tricky, I can skip to problem two and solve that one, then go back to problem one. But if I have a series of math problems, each of which is dependent upon the answer of the previous problem, that's more of an issue where I need to take a more sequential approach. Mm-hmm. So it all depends on the nature of the problem. But assuming that it is one that can be divided up, this model is a fantastic solution, and it's really amazing how people have started to leverage it. Right. Uh, and so this is ongoing today, but the concept is not at all new. This no. has been The idea has existed for decades, and it's been employed in very powerful ways for at least like 10 or 15 years now. Oh, yeah. But, but I think we, we should go back to the beginning of the idea of distributed or grid computing and take a look at how we got where we are today. Okay. All right. So if you go to the very beginning, we're talking about the basic major, huge mainframe computers that uh, didn't have any connection with any other uh, computational device. So they were completely standalone. And if you wanted to divide up work, well... You might want a lot of things, but here's the way life works. It's not going to all pan out for you. So that was the beginning. And then you had the the early days of networking computers together, the first major one being ARPANET. Now, that was in the 60s and 70s, really. So in the 60s, you get this team together that DARPA had wanted to get together, um, and uh, they started trying to figure out ways to let computers talk to one another. Now, that early communication didn't really facilitate distributed computing. You could share work, but you couldn't divide a problem up at that point. There was no infrastructure to allow that sort of thing to happen yet. So <laughs> think of it as people who are able to communicate with one another, but they can't collaborate actively on things yet. You get to the to 1971, you get the first uh, distributed computing problem, which was not a true distributed computing uh, challenge. It was actually the first computer virus called a purposeful virus, though. I'm Well, I mean, I guess all viruses are purposeful viruses. Yeah, it, it was a an experiment, really. Yeah, it's called Creeper. It was a self-copying, self-duplicating piece of code, which you can realize uh, if you talk about self-duplication, it could quickly get out of control and duplicate itself in order to take up all remaining space. There was also Reaper which was meant to diffuse and disarm and remove Creeper. Uh, then you, in the 1980s, you get to the birth of the Internet. So this is the true network of networks. ARPANET is kind of the predecessor to the Internet. It's not really the 
um, the earlier version of it, Internet it, itself was a different thing. Right. But this is when you get to the kind of net that Sandra Bullock gets caught up in. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. It was very accurately portrayed in that movie, as I recall. Uh, it, well, distributed computing ends up becoming an area of research, even though no one has actually launched a uh, distributed computing project the way we think of them today. Uh, right. Well, at this time, it was really only uh, government officials and, and university researchers, people on that level who had access to, to this network. Right, right. You and I, uh, assuming we were not employed by a government or military or university, didn't have access to it. Uh, the Internet was something that um, probably most of us were largely unaware of at the time. It was it was still so um so, so expensive to obtain the kind of equipment that you would need that it was it was really left up to these large organizations. Yeah, most of us were dealing with local networks like like bulletin board systems and stuff that had some connectivity but weren't ultimately leading to the larger Internet. So uh, by 1982, there was a distributed uh, a principles of distributed computing symposium and then another one, an international symposium uh, in 1985. So people were already thinking about the potential for computers to do this kind of thing and starting to lay the groundwork for the technology that would make it possible. By 1988, we get the first internet-based distributing computing project uh, at the DEC System Research Center. And the way it worked is through email. You would, you would get a task through email. So you would volunteer to be part That's of this wonderfully project. wonderfully direct. Yeah. Well, I mean, there wasn't an automated system here yet, like, right? Like, hey, Jed. Yeah. So you, well, you would, you would, first you would volunteer. You'd see like, you know, you'd go to the coffee shop. You see a little piece of paper with strips on it saying, hey, are you willing to lend your computer to help science? Tear off a strip and send an email. And, uh, and most people in the coffee shop would say, what's an email? But you knowing what an email is, you tear off a strip and you send off an email. They send you an email with a task to complete. You run it on your computer, complete the task, and you email the results back. So it's an, it take, takes an active role for the volunteer in order for this system to work. And, uh, the purpose of this project was to factor large numbers, which is an important role, part of, uh, cryptography, computer cryptography. Yeah. And, um, it was a relatively modest project. By 1990, there were about a hundred uh, volunteers using this, and it was fueled in part by challenges issued by the RSA Security Incorporated company. Uh, they wanted to do lots of research on factoring of large numbers as a security company, and and the fact that this has a lot to do with cryptography. It was very important to their business in order for them to make sure that their systems and other systems remain ahead of hackers. So. If it turns out that a group of people can quickly factor a certain size prime number or find the largest primes of a certain number, then they wanted to make sure they could go to the next level in order to avoid issues with people mm -hmm. immediately hacking through all sorts of security systems. Uh, yeah, yeah. Gr greater encryption for uh, greater protection against people who want to decrypt. Yep. And in <laughs> 1997, you get distributed.net, which is really the first project to use the Internet to distribute data for calculation and collect the results automatically. So it did not require the volunteers to uh, receive and send email. It had a software package that did all the handling of that. Automatically. Uh, yeah, it's all yeah. in the background. So mm -hmm. the user just had to install software onto his or her computer. And then uh, start up the software, have an Internet connection, yeah. and the program would, would run itself. Yeah, essentially running in the background, taking you know any unused cycles of processor mm -hmm. and dedicating it to working on the, the problem. And that has pretty much been the model for distributed computing or volunteer computing ever since. You know, I thought you were going to say the first distributed computing project was like an X-Files Usenet group that was uh, sending out tasks to get different people to decode the messages and learn Mulder's secret. Mulder, I'm, sh I'm sure some of that was going on. But I think. I mean, I think, not Mulder's secret. The secret of his 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 family, his past. I his, think. I think the real secret was that everybody but Mulder and Scully knew. Everybody, <laughs> everyone in that show knew more than the spoiler, two main characters. Spoiler. Look, I think. I think that's not a spoiler. Yeah, that's, that's the premise. <laughs> that's saving you some time. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, here we are in the present day. Yes. What 
are some of the big distributed computing projects or volunteer computing projects out there today? And how are they actually making a difference? Like, is this just kind of a lark, you know, oh, this is kind of fun, you can participate? Or does this actually impact science in a meaningful way? Well, let me answer that second question first, because it certainly impacts it in a meaningful mm-hmm. way. You know, Like we were saying, access to supercomputers and grid computers, that's something that if you're incredibly well-funded might not be an issue. But there are a lot of science projects out there that are doing amazing science on very limited budgets. Mm-hmm. And so for this kind of model to come along – for specific types of problems, particularly science projects where you're generating huge amounts of data and then you have to analyze it, it's an incredibly useful tool. And it also, not only is it meaningful in that sense, it's meaningful in the sense it gets people involved in science, even in a passive way. You start to learn more about what your computer is being used for, what mm-hmm. the purpose of that scientific project is, and that encourages scientific literacy, which I think oh, yeah, is incredibly yeah. valuable. Yeah, so it's partially outreach. It's, it's not just getting stuff done. It's also saying, hey, you can be a part of this and also uh, look at this cool thing that we're learning about. Yeah, like, you know, the universe is mysterious. You want to help it be less mysterious? Yeah. You know, it's kind of kind of the way it boils down. And a lot of these projects are all folded under the umbrella of uh, the Berkeley Open Infrastructure for Network Computing, which has a, a, a great acronym. You want to say it, Joe? You know you want to say it. Boink? Boink. Boink. With a C. Yeah, yeah. boink with a boink C. With a C. Uh, it doesn't actually – it's not the full thing isn't boink with a C. But it is boink. <laughs> That has a C at the end of it. Yes. Um, but it's just fun to say. And so I'll probably try and say it as frequently as I possibly can. Well, this is sort of an umbrella program. Yeah, yeah. It, it actually started as a specific platform for one of the programs we'll talk about in a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what happened was it was such a useful approach that it got adopted for other programs. And now it serves as this umbrella where you can go to the Boink website and see all sorts of different projects mm-hmm. listed underneath. Yeah, um, uh, there's a few of these kind of infrastructure out there and yeah. and this one is really cool because it's definitely run by by Berkeley who are good people yeah. and and don't really have much of a of a profit factor in it it's, yeah this, this yeah. is more it's about it's not a fly by night yeah. Of, you know. <laughs> it's, it's yeah it's definitely more about enabling people to do science right yeah, yeah. and less about we made this incredible uh platform that you can use for one low price of 5 million dollars or whatever mm-hmm. uh, so it's it's really cool uh, i logged on to it the day that we're recording this podcast, November 4th, 2014, and saw that there were about 40 projects listed under Boink. Uh, I know that there, it, that changes. There are times when there are many more. Uh, and some of them actually were offline when I looked into them, probably for actually maintenance, uh, for, mm-hmm. for several of them, because you're talking about a, a fairly complex system. Ultimately, the way Boink works is that you've got a master system that kind of determines what the job is, sends the various tasks out to the volunteer computers, uh, accepts the incoming tasks from computers that have completed whatever work you've given them, and then assimilates that into a meaningful way for researchers to look at. So all of this is going on behind the scenes. And meanwhile, the volunteers' computers are doing actual scientific work without Really, you know, without necessarily you being aware of it, some of them come with uh, fun like screensavers. So you can kind of watch a graphical representation of what's going on with your, you know, the work you're doing. One of the ones we'll talk about has one of those. That's pretty cool. Well, let's get to the examples. then. Sure. So uh, here's a, a fun one. SETI at home. The search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Wait a minute. How can I search for extraterrestrial intelligence without a radio telescope? Well, here's how, Joe. (laughs) Uh, You can take data that was gathered by other radio telescopes and use your computer's processor to analyze that information and look for anything that might be meaningful. Uh, Ah. Right, because the thing is, is that when, you know, these telescopes are searching space, there's no, like, big red light that starts flashing when when something, oh, an alien, it's right there, it's right there. We just found the Venusian Elvis. Yeah. 
<laughs> no, I guess what we end up with is a lot of numbers, right? A whole yeah. lot of numbers that yeah. need to be crunched, and so your computer can crunch part of them. Yeah. And so th- it wouldn't have a red light, but your computer might be the one that says, hey, here is an anomaly in the data. Right. Yeah. wonder what that means. Right. And that's you know, it really is looking for those kind of anomalies and trying to uh, flag them so that other people can take a closer look and see if there's actually any signal inside the noise. Because as we know... There's lots of stuff out there in the universe that generates radio signals. Mm-hmm. So just because oh, you lots. pick up, yeah, yeah, you might get up stuff from a pulsar, which is already super cool. The fact yeah. that you know your your computer is working on data generated by a an a, a, an extra solar body that could be light years across from us, but uh, obviously that's not the same as Venusian Elvis, which is what our real goal is here for SETI. But um, <laughs> you know, that's the thing is that. It, with all that kind of information, it's the same sort of thing that if you were to have a massive telescope look deep into space and slowly do uh, pans across the night sky, looking at every single teeny tiny bit of that space to look for meaningful things would take forever. Same sort of thing. Um, it's really dividing up this massive task among lots of different computers to make it more manageable. Because uh, otherwise you would just keep gathering data and it would pile up and, you know, you would always be playing catch up and always falling further and further behind. Mm-hmm. So that's the purpose of SETI at home. Then you have other projects, too, for other types of science. Like like astronomy is a big one, but it's by no means the only one. Right. And it's not always just that you'll be analyzing data that comes in from some kind of collector. You might be running simulations of some kind or processing data from simulations. Right. Uh, one of those being Atlas at home. And Atlas is one of the big projects, one of the, the scientific research projects connected to the Large Hadron Collection. Mm-hmm. Now, is that the one that shrugged that I keep hearing about? No, <laughs> no. Uh, John Galt has nothing to do with it either. So, uh, well, well or good. very little to do with it at any rate. Yeah, at any um, rate, yeah. I mean, who is John Galt? Really? Uh. <laughs> really? So, no, the, the Atlas at Home project. You're just staring daggers at me, Joe. Uh, you, you're giving me this superior grin. I don't know what it means. <laughs> it's not superior <laughs> at all. It's not superior at all. It's just it's just kind of shame, actually. It's a okay. shame grin. No, Atlas at Home is all about running these uh, simulations that you were talking about. So uh, what Atlas is looking for, uh, it's looking for the, the outcomes of proton collisions, which is what happens at the Large Hadron Collider, right? You're, you're colliding streams of protons at near the speed of light and then looking to see what happens. And part of that is a search for lots of stuff that we just don't know if it's going to pan out or not. You know, the boson was one of those things. And then it turned out that we found it. But other things include extra dimensions of space or uh, dark matter or the unification of the various fundamental forces. Yeah. You know, wow. we're talking about like the, the big questions about the universe uh, from a physics perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Well, so, from any perspective. I mean, these are like the most fundamental unsolved questions about reality that exist. Yeah, yeah. Well, or at least the ones that we know of. Who knows yeah. what other questions we're going to find in the future, which is also really exciting, yeah. right? So, you so, know, what's your laptop doing right now? Uh, <laughs> right now it's telling me that my battery is dying. But no, the the <laughs> – the idea is that we would use the Atlas at Home project. In fact, this is this is what's happening. Uh, that to go through petabytes of data, uh, a petabyte is one thousand terabytes. Uh, so, in order for you to get a handle on how big that is, first of all, I remember when a kilobyte was a lot because I'm old. But kilobyte is a, a thousand bits. Then you got megabyte, which is a million. Gigabyte is a billion. Terabyte is a trillion. And then petabyte, which is one quadrillion. So it needs to go through. All this huge amount of data, the computers attached to Atlas at home are using uh, a computer program that run the simulations of the creation and decay of supersymmetric bosons and fermions. And it then uh, sends that information back to the Atlas project. Now, the reason for this, the reason for running all these simulations is to look at which scenarios are the most likely to really happen in real life under the conditions of the proton collisions in the Large Hadron Collider. So you look at the ones that look the most likely based upon these computer simulations, and if you find any evidence of a similar uh, reaction after a real uh, proton collision, then that shows that you might be on 
the right track, right? You might actually have seen something that could be lead to evidence to something like dark matter, which to this day we think exists. It's kind of a, kind of a placeholder name, really. It's the, to fill up the, the matter that must be out there for our, our, uh, vision of the universe to be true. Correct. Well, it's right. the, yeah, we observe its effects, but we can't detect it directly. Right, exactly. So this could lead to evidence that would give us more of an idea of what dark matter actually is. And that's just one thing that Atlas at Home could help lead to. Now, it's not the type of program that your super old computer is going to be able to run in the background because the simulations actually do require a bit of processing power. So they have some, uh, well, some of these. Well, I mean, we're simulating particle collisions, y'all. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but some of these, some of these programs require just, you know, some unused cycles of a CPU and that's it, right? It doesn't, it doesn't have to be particularly powerful. It may mean that your computer running this, this program might take longer to solve a certain task than another person's computer, but it would still work. With the case of Atlas at home, uh, there are actual system requirements. You need to have a 64-bit computer with at least four gigabytes of memory, which is not unusual today. If you were certainly to, not. No. Yeah, if you went out to buy a computer, you, you more than likely fulfill those requirements. But if you're talking about this desktop computer that's just collecting dust and you think, oh, I can dedicate this to science. Yeah, can just, if you, you know, hook that, that old 386 up, it's not yeah, going to no, work. No, no, it'll, you know, maybe you'll be able to play some 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 wicked games from the 1990s, but that's about all you're going to manage to do uh, is, as opposed to helping figure out whether or not dark matter exists. Um, so anyway, it's it's a neat example. And then we come to a couple of others, right? Uh, yeah. One that I wanted to talk about is the Clean Energy Project, which is through IBM's World Community Grid, which is another one of these kind of infrastructures that allows different projects to come in and, and, and use this uh, you know, network of networks. So sort of, sort of this, a similar role as Boink. Uh, right, right. Um, and, and the Clean Ener- Energy Project is, is looking for cheaper, more efficient, greener, more, more flexible solar cell materials. We've talked a lot on the show previously about the, the issues with solar cells and what makes them so clunky and expensive and, and difficult to manufacture. Um, so the research that they're doing could be huge for the future of energy. Um, the project itself has been around since about 2004 and they team up with Harvard University to create this uh, distributed uh, computing program around uh, 2010 or 2011, which is when phase one kicked off. Um, it just completed recently, and, and during it, volunteers helped to sift through a database of over 2 million compounds. They, they were mathematically testing how these, these molecules joined together to form solids and then predicting whether those solids could have the right electrical properties to be useful as components in solar cells. Uh, they, they isolated some 36,000 compounds that could be able to, to double the current efficiency of your average solar cell. Hmm. So, um, According to, to the project website, we can put the work of this in, in perspective by saying that it would have taken a single average PC some 17,000 years to have done this work. Uh, the, the volunteer computers joint effort took about three. 17,000 years. Yeah, I think we might have different that's, problems by then. That's some time. <laughs> yeah, that's quite some time. Yeah. It's a chunk. It's a chunk. Um, and the project has now moved on to phase two in which they're, <laughs> Yeah, phase two. I know it does sound right. very. It's, <laughs> now it's we're now moved on to final processing. <laughs> when I hear phase two, I just think now we're, we we figured out the most efficient means for solar panels. Now for world domination. Yeah, it's very very pinky in the brain. Um, but uh, but but so these these compounds, these thirty six thousand some compounds that they've identified, um, as being potentially useful, are going to be explored more thoroughly. Uh, you know, all of their physical and electrochemical properties, from from optical ability to squishability, are are going to be identified. <laughs> like going down, squishability is important in material it's so science. Important. It's the most. It's the most important. Um, you know, going down to the quantum level of what's going on with these things. Uh, so the, the idea here is going to be to put together a database containing everything about these compounds and to provide, um, you know, not only that, but also direct input to various researchers and inventors who are working on improving solar cell design. Cool. That's really awesome. Yeah. Well, Joe, why don't you tell me a little bit about proteins? 
Why do you ask, Jonathan? Because I'm pretty sure you're the one who wrote the notes on it. You'd be right. Now, I'm going to talk about (laughs) proteins because one of the most interesting projects uh, in distributed computing, I think, is called folding at home. Mm -hmm. And you might have heard of this before because it's been around for years. This has been operating Mm -hmm. since 2000. Yeah, yeah. And it's still going strong. And I think I think we've talked a little bit about protein folding before on the show. It was either on this or tech stuff. They all all get a little scrambled sometimes. I think we've talked about fold it before. I don't know if we've talked about it, which was the actual computer user program where you would move you things around. Or you play a around. video game, kind yeah. of, in order to, to self, self-work out these problems. Self-work out? That was so good grammar. <laughs> Man, I need a good self-work out. <laughs> but yes, so proteins. Uh, our cells are kind of made up of them. They do stuff in our bodies, right? Yeah. Well, proteins are what make your body interesting. Well, what makes you more interesting <laughs> than a rock or a mud puddle? They're, so it's even know, bodies in general, not like my body in particular. No, your body in particular, okay, Jonathan, right, but also enough. everybody else's <laughs> body. Right. They're, they're, they're sort of the, the animal workhorses that they, they do all the molecular work in your body. You've often heard of DNA being referred to as like plans or blueprints. Sure. The blueprints are for making proteins. They make amino acids, which chain up into proteins. So a protein is a huge, long chain of amino acids in a particular sequence. So think of like a literal chain, except each link in the chain is of a different type. Uh, That has different properties. Right. Now imagine you're building a machine, maybe a gigantic factory assembly line for making Big Mouth Billy Bass. Sure. Or uh, You're a terrible person, Joe. For making... Uh, Heath bars. Heath bars. There you go. Exactly. Bring it all back. (laughs) But all you have to work with are these chains. Mm -hmm. And chains don't do much good as machine parts. It sounds like a floppy machine. Sure. But... Have you ever taken a chain and twisted it and keep twisting? It kind of curls up yeah, into a tighter shape. Yeah, it kinks up and makes, makes these, these very, like, eventually uh, immobile kind of like solid Like a rigid shapes. shape. Yeah. 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 And so if you can take a chain and twist it up into a tighter, rigid shape, you might be able to take those tight, rigid shapes that are different because of the different amino acids and the sequences and the different ways that they twist up when you when you press them together – they might fit together like gears or like wires and sockets or like wheels and levers. And this is sort of what happens in your body. For protein chains inside your body to do their job, they need to have the right shape. And to assume the right shape, they fold up. This is called protein folding. Um, now, most of the time, a protein folds up without a problem, right? It just goes on to do its important role and whatever that might be. It could be making up a body tissue like an artery or a strand of hair or a little piece of muscle, or it might become an enzyme or who knows what. I mean, they do all kinds of stuff in your body. Yeah, these are these are the basic building blocks of, like Joe said, of, of what make you electrically and chemically you. Right. But there's a downside because sometimes in rare cases, a protein fails to fold correctly Mm. and the chain does not twist up into the correct shape for doing its job. And so a misfolded protein can be a really bad thing in the body. A lot of really bad diseases are now believed to be caused by uh, either the accumulations or the effects of misfolded proteins. So the examples given by the folding at home project are Alzheimer's disease, cystic fibrosis, uh, BSE, also known as mad cow disease, uh, they they cite an inherited form of emphysema and some cancers. So obviously, in order to cure these diseases, we need to know more about protein folding and about misfolding in particular. And unfortunately, there's a lot we don't know about how protein folding works, because obviously, I mean, it's so tiny and it happens so fast, you can't just like film it and run the game footage. Yeah, yeah. And there's so many um, potential combinations that they can they can mess up in a whole bunch of different exciting ways. Exactly right. Uh, so how are you going to solve this problem? Well, for more than a decade now, we've been trying to learn more about the whole process of protein folding by running computer simulations on this distributed network. Mm-hmm. Now, there are different kinds of simulations you can run about protein folding. You could just try to look at what the amino acid chain is and then predict the final shape based on that. So that's one kind of simulation. But that's not what folding at home does. 
Folding at Home was designed specifically to study the whole process of folding, focusing on the intermediate state. So what's happening as this chain is curling up on itself? Hmm, right. Uh, because they think that those intermediate states might be the source of the problem with misfolding-based diseases. So this is really – I mean, I find the whole concept of protein folding so fascinating because if you look at it with just a couple of amino acids, like a small string, you could – kind of conceptualize how those rules all work together, that certain sequences are going to fold in very specific ways. It's just a set of mm-hmm. rules. But then as you increase the length of that chain, it becomes more and more complicated. Which rules end up being the ones that take priority? Which ones are going to happen first? And then by the time you get to an actual protein length chain, it is almost unfathomably difficult for yeah. us to, to conceive. This, so. this is truly what we were saying earlier, computationally intensive right. to simulate, uh, especially because of the time length involved. So from our point of view, they point out, and I think it's a good point to make, from our point of view, a protein folds almost immediately. It might take a millisecond or a microsecond. Mm-hmm. But to run this simulation, simulating every single force at the molecular level, that that, that long of a transformation takes right. forever to compute. You know, it might take a, forever just to do a few nanoseconds of computation. Right. And so this is a really serious computer problem. But they invited people to help out. In 2000, they launched this project, and since then, it has really come a long way. In the past 14 years, more than 100 research papers have been published based on the simulations run by Folding at Home, and it's gotten, obviously, over time, because compu- you know because it has expanded and because computers have gotten faster, it's become a lot more powerful as a tool, mm-hmm. and it's also been used in combination with other similar tools. So, like those other types of simulations, I was talking about the the end sequence predictors. You can sort of pair these two different approaches together to get some interesting information, uh, or you can pair the simulations done on the distributed network with other types of simulations done on supercomputers. And so this really is really important and and useful knowledge in medical science that could cure these things. I, I just checked the stats on it today. Uh, they said around 2 p.m. on November 4th, 2014, that today we are 163,958 computers strong, outputting 38,222 teraflops of computing power. That's a huge amount of yeah. computing power. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty awesome. And flops is... Uh, Floating point operations per second. Right, right. So, uh, and you're actually, you've installed this on your computer, Oh, right? yeah, I was running. This is one of the coolest things about it just from a user perspective. They give you a little readout of whatever project your CPU cycles are currently contributing oh, to. Oh, cool. So mine is, right now, It's my computer in the background is working on Project 9008, which is targeted at Alzheimer's, and it's, it's studying some of the natural features of bryostatin, which it's got a whole description I think is a little too complex to try to explain here. I, I don't really fully understand it, but uh, it's really cool that you can, what would otherwise just be wasted potential, just my computer sitting here while I'm talking into a microphone is actually contributing to something that could literally save lives in the future. Yeah. Now, does your version of folding at home, does that have the screensaver where it shows the, the the graphical depiction of the protein. I don't know. I haven't poked around it on it enough. See, when I when I installed folding at home on a work computer many years ago, that was the default. Like whenever my computer would go into you know the the low energy mode or whatever, that was the screensaver. So it actually showed the protein huh. folding, a representation of the protein oh, folding cool. as my computer worked on it. Huh. And uh, I remember it changing colors as well to indicate sections that had completed versus ones that were still working. But that was an early version of folding at home, and it may very well be that the the current ones are very different. Sure, uh, sure. Because because just like any other software, this is software that gets. Uh, Patches gets updates. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's so, continually updated, yeah. uh, especially as the research moves forward. Now, there are tons of other ones we could talk about. Some of the other ones that are in Boink include climateprediction.net, which, as you would guess, studies the climate, uh, Cosmology at Home, which studies astronomy and cosmology, uh, Constellation, which is aerospace engineering, 
MalariaControl.net, which is all about epidemiology. Uh, mind modeling at home, which was not for uh, people with very attractive brains I who thought, want to get into the magazines. Yeah, I thought I thought it was that too. Like you just see brains going down the catwalk, but as it turns out, it's all about cognitive science. So I mean, still pretty cool, I guess. Uh, yeah, there's RNA I'm too world. Sexy for my skull. Yeah, <laughs> I I think we got an idea for a reality show, guys. <laughs> let's let's try and keep that on the DL till we can uh, develop a full pitch. But no, RNA World, which is all about molecular biology, uh, and Quake Catcher Network, which is all about seismology. And like I said, when I looked, there were around forty projects. So this is just a a. It's really just to show you that. They go across all sorts of areas of science. Also, I should mention, and I didn't mention it earlier, that they use lots of different platforms. So depending on the project, you might be able to run this on a PC, a Mac, a tablet, uh, a, a smartphone. Uh, some are specifically designed so that specific types of graphic processing units can work on it. GPUs are fantastic because they are multi-core processors. Mm -hmm. So they tend to be able to work on problems and divide those up into smaller sections that each core can work on independently. Who knew that your proclivity for violent video games could one day save the world? I certainly didn't. (laughs) I did not know that until, you know, fairly recently. Uh, but if you would like to get involved in any of these, you, you can visit Boink by going to B-O-I-N-C dot Berkeley dot E-D-U and, and get the hookup from there. Or you could search for Boink on um, your your local app store of choice. I, I believe sure. that if you search it on Android or uh, I, 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 Apple, I iOS. stuff, yeah, that thing, yeah. Uh, you, you can come up with something. Um, also, if you were interested in checking out World Community Grid, the four projects that they're featuring right now um, – well, okay, so you've got the Clean Energy Project. There's also Genome Mysteries, Cancer and AIDS Research up, up, uh, up for for looking at. That's pretty um, awesome. And so, if you wanna if you wanna check them out, you can go to worldcommunitygrid.org. So yeah, lots of ways to get involved, and it's so easy, right? You just all you have to do is install a little bit of software, and whenever your computer is gonna be idle and still connected to the network. To the internet, you'll be able to contribute to these scientific projects. So if there's something in, in particular that, that tickles your fancy and you think, I want to be a part of this, I want to contribute. And it, it, it might, may seem small, but it is significant. And it's definitely more significant than you saying, that's a neat project, but not doing anything. Mm-hmm. So there's that. I, um, I recommend it. I, I haven't noticed really any performance difference on my computer since I've yeah. been running this. These are, these are designed so that they are only supposed to take up the idle cycles. Like, so if you are actually actively using your computer, it's supposed to fade into the background and not take up and the resources. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if you have an older computer where you're having some sluggish issues already, that's probably not going to be ideal because it's just, it, that suggests that there's probably some, uh, things that need to be cleared up on your machine just because of the, the various processes that are running. Uh, but if you have a, you know, a decent running computer and you think I want to, you know, do my part and help science and especially since it's going to be doing stuff when I'm not doing anything else, uh, I recommend it too. I mean, it's a great way to get involved. So really exciting stuff. And who knows what we could see this used for in the future. Well, yeah, one of the things I was thinking about was just pairing this with the continuation of Moore's Law. Sure. I mean, we don't know how long Moore's Law is going to continue, but that's the thing we've talked about plenty of times on here, that computer processing power multiplies at a pretty predictable rate. It, it's continually getting better, and, and we haven't seen it stop yet. Mm-hmm. So the faster computers get, the more and more you can do with 100,000 of them or 200,000 of them or, or I don't know how many thousands of them you can you can talk people into sharing their uh, their computer power with you sure and then also with multi-core processors being able to divide problems up into smaller problems as long as we continue that pathway where we're able to do that effectively then this kind of approach could be useful in all areas of science there's yeah. not there's not a specific one that it would be better for I mean anything that has huge amounts of data that needs to be analyzed is is ripe for this kind of thing 
so it's really exciting stuff. I, I'm glad that we covered this topic. And Joe, this was uh, uh, something that you had suggested. Yeah. And so it was a great suggestion. Thank you. Um, some of you guys out there have had some great suggestions too. And I think you should continue to suggest great things. And the best way to do it is to get in touch with us and let us know what those great things are because otherwise we have to guess. So if you want to send us a message, do so at our email address. That's fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Google+. Our Twitter and Google Plus handle is fwthinking. Just search fwthinking in the Facebook search bar. We'll pop right up. Let us know what you want us to talk about. If there's some topic that you want to hear more about, about how that's going to be in the future, tell us. Ask us your silliest questions. We read all of them. We really enjoy them. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane, back to reality. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Got menopause? We've got you. Hi, Jackie here, founder of ExoJackie. Feel supported throughout your menopause journey and beyond with our organic protein powders and symptom relief boosts. Formulated to keep bones and muscles strong, ExoJackie products help reduce bloating, hot flashes, and weight gain. Enjoy 20% off with promo code EXOPODCAST. Shop now at exojacqui.com. Made for women by women. You deserve to treat yourself. So turn your tax refund into a U-Fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's Unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 4-14-24 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk Extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount.